Read and hear more about important news, events, and public policy debates at ncnewsline.com. This is News and Views. Welcome to News and Views. I'm your host, Rob Schofield. Despite multiple legal challenges to what the Republican legislators who drew them admit are blatantly rigged and gerrymandered districts, it looks like North Carolina's 2024 congressional and legislative elections will go ahead as scheduled. What's more, with the candidate filing period having recently concluded, it's already clear in several districts who will emerge victorious in next November's elections. Indeed, in some cases, the races will be decided in the March primary election because no one has even filed to be the sacrificial lamb in a general election that's been pre-decided. Of course, as sobering as this news is, it comes as little surprise. As I learned a couple months back in a conversation I had with Professor Stephen Rogers of St. Louis University about his new book, Accountability in State Legislatures, gerrymandered districts have become a common pattern across the country, and their prevalence goes a long way toward explaining why modern elections have come to do very little to hold state legislators accountable. Well, Professor Stephen Rogers, welcome to News and Views. Thanks so much for being with us. No, thanks for having me, Rob. So the new book is Accountability in State Legislatures. It's published by the University of Chicago Press. Lots of really important, I'd say, observations about the state of our democracy, particularly at the state legislative level. Talk to us, though, about this basic notion that our legislatures are pretty unaccountable. This is an experience we've, I think we're experiencing in North Carolina right now. Talk to us about some of the general findings you've made. No, yeah, sure. The book addresses this question of do elections hold state legislators accountable for what they do? And so here you can kind of think in North Carolina, whether it be issues of abortion kind of going on right now, voter rights, gerrymandering, different issues. So the legislature is really important for a lot of the things that affect every our everyday lives. And then we kind of think a little bit, we have this electoral system where we think we can be like, if we don't like what someone is doing, we will punish them and throw them out of office. But if we do, we can reward them and return them to office. So this is kind of what I'm thinking about in the book, uh, Accountability in State Legislatures. Do elections kind of hold state legislators accountable for what they do? And regrettably, in this book, I find pretty much across the country, and including in North Carolina, that there isn't a whole lot of evidence that state legislators are actually held accountable for what they do or that they're punished for doing a bad job. And then here, I'm not arguing that there's no accountability whatsoever. We can probably think of those different races where maybe someone was in a scandal or took this really unpopular vote and they got voted out of office. But here, I kind of find this is more the exception rather than the rule. And so I do this sort of analysis of every state within the country. And then here, I think the story a little bit is it's not only a story about, say, voters within elections, but it's also a story about elites in elections. And so I'm sure we'll probably talk a little bit more later about the media. But one thing, for example, that I find is that it's actually really hard to probably hold your state legislator accountable for what they do because a considerable number don't even have any opposition in these elections. So, for example, I find that if we think about the primary election across the country, and here I'm just looking at single-member districts from 2001 to 2020, 83% of state legislators did not face a challenger in their primary election, and then 45% did not face a challenger in the general election. So this is like kind of saying a Democrat didn't face a Republican or a Republican didn't face a Democrat. And so if we take these two statistics together a little bit, Together, 35% of state legislators do not face either a primary or general election challenger. And so here, I just kind of want that to sit in a little bit with listeners, because you can kind of phrase this another way, in which one-third of state legislators across this country just win re-election by signing up. 
I presume it's the case in most states that a huge factor in this, I know it's a factor in North Carolina, it's got to be gerrymandering. The legislatures in most states, I, I think I'm right, draw the maps under which they're elected. So it perhaps is not surprising that they would draw maps that uh, would guarantee certain results that they have in mind and thereby make it almost impossible for a challenger to even mount a, a, an effective campaign against an incumbent. No, you're exactly right, Rob. And so in here, I know North Carolina in particular has been having a lot of debate about redistricting and other states like Wisconsin and other in Ohio, for example, just how are we going to draw these lines? And district partisanship is a big part of the story in this competition aspect. So, for example, if we just kind of look at districts over the last 20 years, all right, and so this is, again, looking at like a nationwide sample, and then say, for example, we want to see, all right, how many of these districts are actually competitive? And so for purposes of this conversation, I'm going to define a competitive district as one where, like, the major, like, the president's party received between 45 and 55 percent of the vote in the district. And so in this, a 45 to 55, there's a chance that either party could win this district. If we go back to the year 2000 and say, yeah, the year 2000 with Gore and Bush, about 25% of state house districts across the country met this criteria of being a close district. Mm-hmm. However, if we kind of jump to 2012, this drops to 20%. Mm-hmm. And then if we drop go to 2022, this drops to 15%. And then we're seeing actually pretty strong increases, both on the Democratic Republican side of the number of partisan districts. And so this isn't just a story about Democrats gerrymandering or Republicans gerrymandering. It is a story about these districts just becoming more partisan. But we've seen about a 10% drop in the number of close districts. And then here, the people running for state legislature aren't dumb. They know that if a district is really favoring the other party, they're not going to run, you know, sort of thing, because they're just going to lose. They may run just like for symbolic purposes, but oftentimes they may not. And so with this diminishment of partisan districts, then state legislators are probably going to be challenged a little bit less and they're going to be safer. And by being safer, this can also have implications for how they vote in in the legislature itself. And I suppose there's even a factor these days of voters basically self-segregating, right? I mean, isn't that a trend in the country that we're all sort of gravitating to neighborhoods where people are more like-minded and it's the, you know, deeply red and deeply blue districts. Yeah, that's a really good point, Rob. Like, so while earlier we were talking about gerrymandering and the increase of these close districts, it can just be hard for a legislator to draw a more competitive district just to this like geographic polarization or geographic sorting as political scientists would kind of describe it, where it's like, oh, I'm just going to sort into this more democratic area or into this more Republican area because I want to be around people like me a little mm-hmm. bit more. And so this is another part of the story is like this compounding problems of gerrymandering or district partisanship where legislators are probably becoming so safe, they don't have any competition, then they can probably vote however they want. Although perhaps in North Carolina, we might note that last year we had our courts order a redrawing of our congressional map. And you were basically a 50-50 state, maybe slightly Republican. President Obama won the 2008 election here. Republicans have won the presidential elections. We've had a Supreme Court uh, race decided by 400 votes in the whole state. We have a 7-7 congressional map, and yet our General Assembly has huge supermajorities for Republicans in both the House and the Senate. That, that seems as if that's got to represent 
some pretty successful gerrymandering on the part of the power of the Republicans in power. I mean, I suppose there could be other explanations, but it's hard to imagine that's not a pretty big factor. Yeah, I don't want to say I'm an expert on North Carolina sure. redistricting, but I bet your intuition is right. I bet if you were to talk to my sister who lives in Milwaukee, she'd be <laughs> saying the same thing about Wisconsin, where Wisconsin, it's not like exactly 50-50, but it's been pretty close. Yeah. But the legislature itself is very close to like super majorities or veto-proof majorities, and in that they are dealing with a lot of these same issues. But here we have to remember, it's like we can kind of talk about gerrymandering North Carolina Republicans, Wisconsin Republicans, but Democrats also sometimes have this incentive as well in order to redistrict these districts in order to make more fair or maps that they see as more fair because politicians aren't dumb they know the rules of the game matter and so if you can stack the deck a little bit more in your favor oftentimes they will coming up next part two of my special extended conversation with professor stephen rogers stay with us read and hear more about important news events and public policy debates at ncnewsline.com this is news and views Welcome back to News and Views. I'm Rob Schofield. In part one of my special extended conversation that I had in October with Professor Stephen Rogers about his new book, Accountability in State Legislatures, we discussed the sobering fact that a huge share of American state legislators, including here in North Carolina, have little or no reason to pay much attention to the views of voters or have any concern about whether they will be reelected or even face a viable opponent. In part two of our conversation, we explored more of the reasons behind this remarkable state of affairs, how it undermines democracy, and perhaps more importantly, some of the things we can and should do to address the situation. We're talking with Professor Stephen Rogers, who's an associate professor of political science at St. Louis University, about his new book, Accountability in State Legislatures. What about the voters, Professor? I mean, I think I remember reading a sentence in the book that said, voters aren't stupid. <laughs> is there a reason they don't know who they're like? I mean, it seems like your your numbers show that people really don't pay a whole lot of attention. This is where so much important law is made in our state legislatures. And yet, with the nationalization, I guess, maybe of politics, people are really more aware of what's going on in Washington or what's going on on CNN, maybe, than they are what's going on, you know, a few miles from their home, it seems. No, yeah. Uh, so, Rob, I really like that you bring up, it's like, I say the voter is not stupid. And then here, this is something, admittedly, casually with friends, it's like, you're just saying the voter's stupid. And I'm, I am trying to make the point that I'm not calling the voter stupid in this aspect, because here, for example, I ask your listeners to ask themselves. And so right now you're tuning in to a podcast that's talking about a book called Accountability in State Legislature. So odds are your listeners are having a little bit more interest in state politics than the average person. But here I just ask your listeners to ask yourselves, take a moment, pause, and then ask yourself, who is your state representative in the North Carolina State House? And then here, this question is, if you do not know, this question is not meant to make you feel dumb. Because in this, only 9% of Americans and 11% of voters can recall their state legislator's name. And in here, this is a little bit troubling because if we're thinking about accountability, we may want to think it's like, okay, we're going to need to know who we're holding accountable. And then these kind of questions are a little bit tough. So just kind of coming up to name, like I'm horrible with names. Right? <laughs> when I teach, I make flashcards with my students' pictures on them in order to try to learn their names. But here also, so asking cold what your name is, it's maybe tough. But then in a separate survey of Tennesseans, I found that only about 22% of Tennessee voters could identify their state legislator's name from a list of five. 
And so there, this is about 16% fewer than can identify their U.S. House member. And so even when we're kind of thinking about this accountability, a lot of people don't know who a state legislator is. And then they also don't really know what they're doing from day to day. So, for example, I asked a nationally representative sample. It's an open-ended question just kind of telling me, can you tell me something that your state representative has done for your district? And in here, 75% of respondents volunteered saying no (laughs) or don't know. And then the remaining 25%, they said something. But here, I'm just giving them kind of credit for whatever they said in terms of being right. And so then in this, this is going to make accountability tough. And so if you don't know who your state legislator is, then how are you going to hold them accountable for what they are doing? And so this is another troublesome thing. We're coming to the end of our time with Professor Stephen Rogers, who's an associate professor of political science at St. Louis University. His new book is Accountability in State Legislatures. Professor, do you have any uh, recommendations for us? I mean, we know here in North Carolina, NC Newsline, we have a sibling publication in Missouri, the Missouri Independent, that are trying to fill some of the gap that's been brought on by the demise of traditional, what we now refer to as legacy news media, which we figure probably contributes a little bit to this lack of understanding amongst voters. Are there things we can do? Should North Carolina consider having off-year elections? I mean, right now we elect everybody during presidential years. We elect just about every legislative office, all our council of state, our judges, our president, our governor, seven or eight council of state offices. Is that something that maybe that help a little bit to have off-year elections? No, yeah. So I think you brought up two potential ways to address. One is like outlets like NC Newsline having more reporters mm-hmm. devoted to state government. So one thing we kind of mentioned is that since the turn of the century, there's one third fewer state reporters devoted to covering state government oh. um, than there were, like, say, back in 2000. And then like another little like statistic that is a little bit troubling. And so here I am still a Rams fan, even though they moved to L.A. Um, but there are more reporters that are credentialed to cover a typical Super Bowl than hmm. all 50 state governments. Wow. And so then in this one thing that we can probably do is have more coverage of state legislatures that would probably bring more increase. I show that this will increase voters knowledge of state legislatures. However, it probably won't increase it enough in order to kind of get to the levels we are with in Congress. And Rob, I think you bring up a nice point regarding off-year elections, in which I actually do find similar patterns in terms of accountability in both the off-year and on-year states. And so this could, there's a little bit of separation, but I do find that there's little accountability still in these states. And additionally, national politics largely dominates Mm -hmm. these states. And then here, I think it's also important to kind of consider like, so Sarah Anzia has it from um, UC Berkeley has an excellent book about school board elections. Mm. And one thing that she highlights is that when you have elections that aren't necessarily at the same time when most voters are engaged, you do run into problem that voters may be over like burdened, but you also may run into the problem that if you have it in the off year, you may get a certain type of voter. Hmm. Who's turning out in these elections. So Anzia very nicely kind of points out that in school board elections, a lot of times interest groups would like it not during the regular election so they can turn out their members to hmm. kind of vote. And then similarly, we can potentially encounter that the typical voter is not paying attention to all everything that's going on, like just because they're busy oftentimes. And so then if we get in the off year, it may be those certain types, maybe more educated or more wealthy voters who are turning out. And that could be a potentially troublesome aspect. 
But overall, what probably my recommendation would be is probably try to fix the districts, as we kind of talked about at the beginning of this podcast. And then additionally, trying to add more media, but overall just trying to simplify things. Professor Stephen Rogers is a, an associate professor of political science at St. Louis University. His new book, Accountability in State Legislature. Should folks go to University of Chicago Press or where should they go to, to get the book? So you can buy the book uh, via Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. Um, if you want to kind of direct link, go to StephenMRogers.com slash book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so here I'm going to recommend not searching for Steve Rogers because many of your listeners may know that's Captain America. Uh, hopefully <laughs> Captain America endorses my book. Um, But if you just search for the term accountability in state legislatures on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, your readers should be able to find the book in paperback. Well, congratulations. It's an excellent contribution to our political discourse in this country. We need more like it. Keep up the great work. Uh, I hope our paths cross again, and uh, we'll talk again sometime on News & Views. Great. It was a great conversation, Rob. Thank you for the time. Coming up next, an inspiring holiday season story about the amazing work of a Durham public school teacher and how she and her family and friends have made a remarkable impact in their community. Stay with us.